This episode of Mountain Meister is supported by the American Alpine Club. Protect yourself with now up to $12,500 in rescue insurance in case you get into trouble. Join today at AmericanAlpineClub.org. You're listening to Mountain Meister. I'm your host, Ben Shank. Last week, you may have heard that the climbing community lost one of its most talented, hardworking, passionate mountaineers. That was Uli Steck. I met and interviewed Uli a couple of times. One of them was in a climbing gym outside of Boston. Uh, and then later that day, I got to watch a presentation with footage from just an incredible project that he was doing in the Alps. Watching his style of climbing uh, gave me goosebumps and it made me feel queasy because I didn't like didn't quite understand it. Uh, the way that he moves through the mountains is uh, just beyond comprehension for some people. I think because you don't see all of the work that goes into it. Uh, you don't see, it's hard to see at least, his desire to push the limits. Uh, and then, you know, we see the highlights, but not the, the training and the experience that goes into those. Uh, Uli recognized, and said this during our interviews, he recognized the risks of what he was doing. Uh, as do almost all alpinists, uh, but it's a risk that they're willing to take. Uh, I'm not sure exactly if there's anything that we learned from this, except it was a reminder of something we already knew, and that's that the talented, even the most talented, aren't infallible. Uh, there's a condolence book on his website. If you'd like to write in it or just take a look at uh, what other people have said, I'll have the link posted to our Facebook if you want to check it out. Today's episode features Chris Noble, who has written a book called Why We Climb. I was planning on releasing this episode at around this time anyway, but it seems even more relevant now with Uli's accident. Chris's book explores the various answers to the question, why do you climb, and includes interviews with some of the world's most notable climbers, many of them guests on the show, Conrad Anker, Angie Payne, Alex Honnold, Raf Slavinsky, and more. Here's my interview with Chris Noble. Chris, thanks for joining. Yeah, thank you, Ben. So why is the question, why do you climb, seemingly more interesting or asked more frequently uh, than a question, why do you play blank or why do you do fill in the blank? Yeah, I think the answer to that is twofold. Um, first of all, climbing is dangerous and it always has been. It's certainly gotten safer over the years, but you know, there's still a definite level of risk. People, uh, especially in big mountain or alpine climbing, people kill, get killed doing it all the time. And, you know, you can get killed playing football, too, um, or driving your car. But football and driving are still mainstream. Everybody, you know, does it for the most part. So the risks tend to get overlooked. Um, the second part of the answer is that for the most part, climbing doesn't bring any easily understood rewards uh, to the general public, at least. I mean, excellence in football can get you a date with a head cheerleader. It can get you a college scholarship. And, you know, there's always the possibility of making millions in the NFL. But um, there are professional climbers, but the odds of becoming one are still very low. Uh, and the chance of making millions doing it are, you know, astronomically low. So the general populace kind of looks at climbing as something that's uncomfortable, it's scary, it's dangerous, and it's kind of utterly useless from any practical standpoint. And, um, and, I, and I think that's why people who aren't climbers always ask, why do you do it? 
uh, why do you waste your time on this sort of useless pursuit? And, and it's also why climbers themselves have such a difficult time answering the question, because the rewards of climbing are intensely personal. Um, they're intangible. And like any inner experience, they're difficult to explain to someone who hasn't shared that. And it still doesn't the, – the question alone doesn't get answered. Climbers are still asking that question to other climbers, which is interesting. You wrote a book about it and you're a climber. That's exactly right. And I was a little bit – I mean I feel like it's sort of the central question of the of the sport or lifestyle depending on – you can't even say what climbing really is. Is it a sport or is it a lifestyle? It's all these different things. And uh, and so because of that, I was a little bit leery of taking it on because it felt somewhat arrogant. And I, I've tried to take steps in the book to sort of say – hey, you know, there's no one answer to this. There's many answers to this question as there are climbers. Everyone does it for slightly different reasons. But here are uh, some of the, you know, most common um, responses when you talk to people. These are the reasons that a lot of people say that they climb. So you said you were hesitant at first. What, what really made you pull the trigger to write this book? I wanted to really write a book about what I perceive as the heart and soul of climbing. And this is the way to do it, I think. And so that, you know, those two questions, why we climb and what is the heart and soul of climbing, they kind of come together. And, uh, and I think we are able to achieve that in this one work. Mm -hmm. And what about, so I think there are around 10 or so climbers. Uh, yeah, how, I think 12 altogether. 12 yeah. altogether. How did you decide who would be a good fit? That, um, yeah, that's a difficult question because there's so many talented people, obviously. Um, but what I did, what I did want to make sure that each one of these people sort of um, represented um, some of the broad spectrum of activities that climbing really uh, includes. And, and that's that's another thing that I try to delve into in the book, that one reason it's so difficult to say what, why do we climb is that Climbing is so many different activities. I mean, for a lot of people today, it's climbing in a gym, and then there's people going off to climb in the Himalayas, and there's all these different things in between. So I try to pick out people that represented different aspects of it, as well as being just uh, some of the most talented and accomplished climbers uh, around. And, and also, I wanted a, a, a geographic spread. Um, I mean, I've got a Canadian, I've got a Kiwi, I've got several people from Europe as well even though the book is oriented primarily toward North American readers. So they have different styles and also very different perspectives and different approaches. So I was wondering like, who in the book in particular maybe uh, really intrigued you? Well, I really relate to Peter Croft. Uh, and I, you know, I didn't know Peter. I'd met him a few times, but just very briefly before uh, working with him on the book. But I think all I mean, if you if you stand around enough campfires and talk to climbers, Peter's name always comes up as somebody that's universally respected, um, not only for his sheer talent, but also, you know, his dedication to the climbing lifestyle and his humility. I mean, he just he never if you go to see a slideshow or a presentation by Peter, he's doing these amazing things. But he's never the emphasis is never on himself. It's simply on how great the experience was and it's sort of self-deprecating humor and things like that. And so, you know, I think that that just is admirable. Um, and this story that he tells in the book about when he and 
John Bakar first, uh, they were the first people to climb both the nose on El Capitan and the regular route on Half Dome in a day. And, um, you know, I think we kind of, in today's world, we're always waiting for the latest, greatest news, like, oh, somebody did this, this, this faster than somebody else. And we sort of lose the context and also just how difficult those things are. I mean, if you've been up on El Cap or you've been up on Half Dome, you realize how immense and how challenging it is to climb one of those routes in a day, let alone combine them. And even, you know, even by today's standards, I think it's a huge achievement. So here, Peter's talking about when nobody had had the vision or the uh, ability to climb that, and he and Bakar went to do it. And, um, and you know, he talks about Bakar in a very uh, kind of loving way. But a lot of, uh, like even other climbers in the book who'd worked with Bakar talks about how challenging he was and how competitive he was. But in this particular case, he was extremely uh, supportive of Peter. And uh, at one point, Peter somehow just dropped their second rope off the back of his harness. He doesn't even know when it disappeared, but it was gone. And then another pitch, he ran up and he was pulling on this big detached flake and he actually pulled it loose, which would have been catastrophic, not only for them, but for climbers below them. And, um, and Bakar runs up and pushes it back into place. And as he, as Peter says, um, Bakar could have, you know, crushed him with a single word. He felt so bad right at that point. He felt like such a loser. And instead, John showed Peter what a real hero is. And that is someone who inspires you to be better than you are. And to me personally, that's just one of the wisest ob- observations in the book. Yeah. What about what about someone who you can't quite relate to? Uh, I, I guess I have the hardest time relating to the pure sport climbers who travel around just doing the next hardest route. Um, I've never been a projector myself. Um, Maybe I'm just too impatient. I mean, I kind of come from a generation before that started. I still, yeah, I just can't, I can't spend all summer trying to work one route. It just doesn't uh, kind of resonate with me. So it's not like I don't admire this. I mean, you know, Sharma and Adam Andra and Paige Clausen and tons of people. I mean, they they climb so much harder than I, I'll ever climb. Um, and so it's not like I don't have admiration for them, but I don't, uh, that, that doesn't excite me in the same way, you know, to go do the hardest route you possibly can. And then the second you're done, you start thinking about the next hardest route you can do and where that might be. So that's, it's just a, a, a different approach. It's a, but it sounds like each approach needs the other one, right? You need people that are pushing and specializing in one thing. Uh, and then you need the bigger picture or bigger project people, uh, who have a, more of a breadth and an understanding of uh, how this will eventually impact uh, the climbing community. I think that's exactly right. And I think that's one thing that's so exciting about the sport, that there's so much variety to it. And that one thing informs the other. I mean, obviously, we're seeing enormous gains in the big mountains now because people that have been projecting as kids are now taking those same skills and that ability to the big mountains. So, yeah, it all it all is interrelated. And I think that's the most exciting mix of all. You're listening to Mountain Meister. This is my interview with Chris Noble on his most recent book, Why We Climb. The link to purchase is on our website, mtnmeister.com. I'll also post a link to Facebook. 
We left off talking about the different styles of climbing. One of those styles, one that many experienced climbers aren't really a fan of, is the commercial style Everest expeditions. Chris quotes Ivan Chouinard, the founder of Patagonia, in the book. You get these high-powered people who want to climb Everest. They spend $85,000, and there's a Sherpa in the front pulling and a Sherpa in the back pushing, carrying oxygen bottles so you can cheat the altitude. You haven't climbed Everest. The purpose of climbing something like that is to affect some kind of spiritual or physical change. When you compromise the process, you're an asshole when you start out, and you're an asshole when you get back. When I hear a quote like that, it sounds like this supposed open-minded approach of accepting different styles has some restrictions. That's the next topic in our conversation. I think that um, what I was getting at by using Chenard's quote in that respect, I won't you know, try to speak to what his opinion is um, in the broader sense, but that um, that kind of high-altitude um, tourism that goes on on Everest, uh, it, you know, it doesn't particularly serve anyone in some ways. I mean, it, it's, an inter- it's, it's an introduction, but you, know, you could get an introduction to mountaineering in other ways, and it, it tends to put relatively inexperienced people sort of in harm's way, uh, and also just the amount of money at stake clouds people's judgment. So it makes things more dangerous. Uh, and at the same time, you know, it's, it's, there's good aspects to it because, um, you know, it encourages, encourages people to get fit. It introduces them to one of the most beautiful and sublime places on earth, which is the Kumbu Himal. It's one of my favorite places. Um, and I think the majority of mountaineers just feel like that kind of commercialism, uh, is sort of against the heart and soul of mountaineering, which is all about self-reliance, taking care of yourself, a deeper connection with nature and things like that. So um, your question, it's a good question and it's a complicated answer um, because it just depends on where you stand on the spectrum. Some people feel like uh, that kind of high altitude tourism brings, a, you know, money uh, and economic benefits to an underserved and remote region, which is the Kumbu. And then on the other hand, you have this big argument that it's actually um, taking advantage of the Sherpa people and placing them in one of the most dangerous work environments on the planet. So um, that's something people have to judge for themselves. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to say that I've got the ultimate truth there. I uh, you, you said there that Kumbu is one of your favorite regions, and I uh, – I'd like this one little story. You mentioned it very briefly uh, in the part about why spirit matters, uh, about somebody that you met, I think, on your way to Everest. Who uh, do you do you know what story I'm talking about? It's a, I do. Yeah. I, who was this a real person that you met? I yeah, couldn't, it really I couldn't tell was. if she was like a, a metaphor. No, she well, she works perfectly as a metaphor. But um, yeah, she was a uh, French woman who, uh, you know, was. A, you know, a very serious student of Buddhism who had come to Nepal and lived in a was living in a monastery uh, near Namchi Bazaar, about an hour's walk from Namchi Bazaar. And so I just met her in a tea house one night in Namchi and ended up talking to her because I was a little bit intrigued by who who she might be and what she was about. And so we had this um, really interesting conversation. She had grown up near Chamonix in France. And she wasn't a climber, but she was certainly 
as a young person, a hiker and was into the mountains. And then as she got deeper into Buddhism and meditation, you know, she made the comment that she could find everything that she could find walking around in the mountains. She could find now uh, sitting on the meditation cushion. And she asked me, you know, what I actually what benefits I found from uh, climbing mountains and Wait a minute. it's a so you're on your way to Everest and she said mm-hmm. well basically all the benefits that you find climbing mountains I've found in meditation exactly uh-huh. yeah and I knew what she was getting at because I think that's you know and that in fact that whole chapter on spirit matters uh, kind of explores in some ways these kind of you know the spiritual mental physical benefits of climbing all kind of collide and and you 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 know you're trying to get you're trying to clear your mind you're trying to clear your mind of the clutter of the modern world and sort of the complexity and the gray areas of modern life you know that uh we all struggle with every day and so there's that and when things are going well your mind you're very very focused a lot like meditation and i'd done some meditation even back then when i spoke to that woman so i knew sort of what she was talking about and then on the same time as i pointed out to her i just couldn't i couldn't understand giving up so much experience in the mountains to sit on a cushion i mean i I got that maybe you could get to the same place mentally and spiritually and at the same time it seemed like and it still seems to me an enormous sacrifice to uh, give up living in the world uh, simply to to sit on that cushion. And this almost gets to what we talked about at the beginning of the interview, the fascination behind why we climb is because it seems like this person has achieved why someone would climb without the dangerous aspects that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's certainly possible. Um, and, and I think that climbers struggle with that question all the time. I mean, on one hand, you love the activity. Uh, and at the same time, in certain forms of climbing, you know, you're risking your life. And also, you you know, that's a, got a very detrimental effect on the people who love you. I mean, it's one thing to risk your own life, but you also have to weigh in the equation, the effects on everyone else who cares about you. And, and that's why, a lot of climbers that are very serious climbers as young people, once they get married and have children and things like that, they they tend to drift away from it, at least from alpinism. Mm-hmm. And so you draw this spiritual connection on that page. And then I noticed on the next page, uh, you mentioned the psychologist William James. He says the the primary challenge facing modern man is to find a moral alternative to war. And you say that climbing fills that void. So where... Where does all of this fit? There's a desire to uh, be meditative and peaceful and then also to engage in uh, some form of war. Yeah, and I and the point being there is that war is um, extremely addictive uh, in some ways. It's such a heightened way of living. It, in some ways, people that come back from it, um, I mean, obviously it can be extremely traumatic too, but it also – um, it makes normal life very difficult again. And climbers have the same problem. Like they go off on an expedition. Life is pretty simple. It's just, you know, working hard to get to the top. You're very, very focused, one pointed, uh, which is kind of the aim of a lot of meditation. And then suddenly you come back to the to normal world and um, you're paying bills and you're having fights with your girlfriend and dealing with a whole bunch of stuff that you don't fully understand. And so, um, 
I think. But the point here with William James is that uh, warfare provides this heightened life. And at the same time, it's soul crushing because you're actually, you know, killing other people and um, really destroying the earth with modern warfare. So how can you find a moral equivalent climbing and, and not just climbing? I'm sure surfers and kayakers and all kinds of people feel like they can do this. They're sort of uh, they're competing with something, but not other people. They're competing with themselves, their own limitations. And so climbing provides that. And, uh, you know, the, the correlation with warfare, it goes back to in the same chapter, I talked about what would have happened if climbing had been invented in feudal Japan or ancient India or someplace like that, which were very spiritual cultures. And, uh, you know, the samurai, uh, they, they were entranced with Zen Buddhism because, it allowed them to um, perform better as swordsmen, uh, trying to get their heads out of the way. And in a way, we're still, all of us are still dealing with that. Athletes deal with that all the time, trying to get, you do something until you can do it kind of on autopilot. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no conscious thought. You just flow into the experience. And uh, climbers definitely try to do the same thing. So there are these deeper answers. And then there are also more matter-of-fact answers for why we climb competition fitness, camaraderie, uh, and some lighter stories. I liked Honold's story of taking a one-hour phone call while free-soloing a route. That one's pretty funny, isn't it? Yeah. Um, And it really perfectly encapsulates all the strange and wonderful aspects of Alex's very unique lifestyle. You know, he, he lives most of the time in his van and a lot of that time in Yosemite Valley. And, um, Yosemite has notoriously bad cell coverage, uh, very spotty. So he always has to take these phone calls when he's in a place that has service. And he, so he carries his phone everywhere. And since he climbs nearly every day, that's often up on the side of a cliff. And on that particular day you're referring to, he was free soloing the Stexalathe on Sentinel Rock. And he gets this call from a writer who is doing a book about fear. So Alex answers the phone and he sits down on a ledge and he ends up talking for an hour about fear, uh, all in the middle of climbing a thousand foot wall without a partner or a rope. And uh, and finally he hangs up and then he looks around. And he's like, holy cow, you know, here I am in the middle of uh, this wall. I still got half of it to climb. I'm kind of cold. It's getting late. And, uh, you know, what am I going to do? And I think if it was anybody but Alex, that might have been a big problem. But um. <laughs> But as he said in the book, he said, he said, oh, I finished the route. I hiked down. It was fine. But in retrospect, I was thinking maybe I shouldn't have taken a business call in the middle of soloing a big wall. Maybe I should have just maintained my momentum. But sometimes you've got to get your work done, too. <laughs> uh, to wrap up, Chris, what are some of the main reasons why you climb? Yeah, I think first and foremost, just because it's so much fun. Um I have to say, when I started my earlier book, Women Who Dare, I still had this slightly puritanical point of view about, um, you know, playing all the time and not, you know, not doing serious work for a living and um, hanging out with the climbers in the first book and this one. I mean, these are all people who unapologetically have accepted climbing as the one ruling passion and purpose in their lives. And that's been eye opening and it's been contagious. Um as Brittany Griffith said in Women Who Dare, her life was 
kind of a mess before she discovered climbing. She didn't know where she was going or what she was going to do next. And then when she discovered climbing, everything fell into place. Her friends, her relationships, her work, and her play. I mean, it all started to make sense, basically, and fit together. And, um, and I really believe that that's what's missing in most people's lives in the modern world. I think that overall people have a difficult time discovering passion or purpose. I think most people are working jobs that they don't particularly like uh, simply to pay the bills and buy things they don't particularly need. And um, modern life has given us this level of comfort and security that we've never had before in human history. But at the same time, it, it sort of fails miserably in providing meaning and purpose. And, um, and climbing reconnects us uh, with you know, the earth that was humming along for billions of years before we existed and will probably be spinning long after we're gone. It heals this split between our bodies and our minds that, um, in my opinion, sort of the central affliction of modern humans. It introduces us to millions of other people like us that share that same passion. And it takes us to the most beautiful places on earth. As uh, Chris Sharma said in the book, I can't think of any reasons not to climb. You can buy the book, Why We Climb, in a bookstore near you, or head over to our website, mtnmeister.com. We'll have the link to purchase there. Chris, thanks for joining us. Ben, thanks. It's been really fun talking to you. Thanks for listening to today's episode. In addition to bookstores, you can purchase the book online, bit.ly slash book. Link on our website, too, mtnmeister.com. Heads up, if you live in the Portland area, Portland, Oregon, not Portland, Maine, one of our Summit for Someone climbers who's going to be joining us on the Grand Teton this July and a Mountain Meister listener, Neil Robinson, is hosting a fundraising event for Big City Mountaineers. It's going to be at Cider Riot, again, Portland, Oregon. I have never been to Cider Riot, but I'm sure, given the beverages that are made in Portland, it's going to be really, really tasty. There will also be live music from this bluegrass band called Cascade Crescendo. So we've got cider, we've got live bluegrass, and excellent prizes, including Mountain Meister t-shirts. I sent them over to Neil the other week. I shared the event on our Facebook page, and the link will also be on our website, It's Saturday, May 13th from 4 p.m. to 8 p.m. That's all for me. Enjoy doing the rest of whatever you do while you listen to the podcast that explores the minds of those who explore. Until next time, I'm your host, Ben Shank. Thanks for listening to Mountain Meister. Mountain Meister.